This is a special edition. News 1023 Tulsa's 24-hour news weather and traffic at the home of the three big things you need to know. Listen on air, online at krmg.com, and on the KRMG app. The KRMG Morning News 8 a.m. in-depth hour starts now. Our top story on the KRMG Morning News with Dan Potter. It's a KRMG Morning News 8 a.m. in-depth hour. The rate of release at Keystone Dam still over 250,000 cubic feet per second. Oklahoma Senator James Langford expect, inspecting the dam early today, and KRMG's Skyler Cooper spoke with him, joins us live. Skyler. Morning, Dan. Senator Langford got out here early this morning. He was touring the dam by 5.30 a.m., and he spoke to me a little after 6 o'clock. He went all the way through and kind of came out to give me an idea of his thoughts of the day. A normal day here is about 11,000 cubic feet per second. We're at 250,000 right now. So it's a lot more than a normal day, but it's less than what the 86 flood is. Yeah, the 86 flood, they were releasing over 300,000 cubic feet per second. I also spoke with the commander of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers in the Tulsa District, Chris Huston, and he was telling me that the dam is capable of releasing up to a million cubic feet per second. So they would never do that. But it's capable of it. So what that tells you is what it's doing now is fine. It's totally fine structurally. Even though the lake is very full, everything is going well out here. The problem is downstream, obviously, where the flooding is happening. And they have free sandbags available at 81st and Lewis at ORU. If you need to go get those and put them up on your house in the city, of all kinds of Tulsa, Bixby, Broken Arrow, they're all issued uh, evacuation recommendations. So far, nothing is uh, mandatory, but keep an eye on those. That could change. Reporting live at Keystone Dam, Skyler Cooper, News 1023, KRMG. Issues that matter to you. Expanded on the KRMG Morning News, 8 a.m. in-depth hour. 8.02 now, and uh, we'll get back to Skyler in just a moment. Uh, in this hour, in just a moment, we're going to hear from Charles Hart, who is the godfather of Tulsa's flood plan, as, uh, as well as Ron Flanagan, who's uh, one of the planners, uh, key to the city's uh, flood mitigation efforts back in the 80s, and, and continuing now an expert on it. Mayor G.T. Bynum scheduled to join us as well. But first, let's go to Adam Weiss with the Army Corps of Engineers. Good morning, Adam. Uh, good morning. What's your title with the Army? Um, so I'm a public affairs specialist. Okay. Uh, what is the situation as – I'm sorry, you, you, it didn't sound like you finished there. You're a public relations specialist. <laughs> no, no, specialist. I'm just a public affairs specialist with the Corps specifically. Okay. Um, what is – have we gotten an 8 o'clock reading yet on the release rate at Keystone? Have you, do you have that by any chance? If not, I can get it. Um, right, right now the release rate remains at 250000 Okay. How long do you anticipate that being the, the rate of release? Um. Well, I will say we, we, we never want to forecast anything based on um, based on the weather as it changes, we know, in Oklahoma. At this point, it's at 250, and it's scheduled to stay at 250, ideally through the weekend. Um, we're monitoring the rain up north in Kansas in that area because, obviously, we know that flows down to us, and that's going to impact how we adjust the rate. Um, but if there's no additional inflow beyond what we're managing, hopefully next week it can start to lower from 250. It's going to remain that way for the next few days. Adam, you know, in our job, Rick and I sometimes feel that we're damned if we do, we're damned if we don't, that, uh, you know, we're walking this line trying to please everybody when that's just not possible. And I look at the core and and your role this week, you're just – I mean, I, it's so tough. It's got to be tough for you to decide what is best, although I'm betting there's a protocol that if A happens, then B must happen. And, and, and you're exactly right about that. We do have to walk a line between priorities. Um, the, the biggest focus for the Corps is to mitigate the risk 
of of the water flood, uh, excuse me, of flood impacts. And so we, we we hold as much as we can and release as much as we need to to make sure that the floodwaters are controlled. Um, like as you've seen, the water rate is up to 250,000, which is a substantial amount. Um, but we release what we need to to make sure that we retain control of the dams themselves. Um, if the if the flood, excuse me, if the water that's held in Keystone Lake um, reaches a certain point and goes over the over the gates that control the water flow, then we no longer have that ability to control the water. And that's our our biggest thing is we have to maintain control over the flow. And so we'll release what we need to to make sure that we can maintain control over the water. Adam, this might not necessarily be a fair question. If you can't answer it, just tell me you can't. But we know that it takes a while for the water to get downriver. Once we reach 250 and it, say, gets downriver and evens out, should that mean that the waters past that really won't rise unless you start releasing more again? Or is there a chance it would still continue to go up? I can tell you that, um, you know, when when we – when we raised the rate from 235 to 250,000 at Keystone yesterday, we knew that the water would take about 12 hours roughly to get to Bixby for them to see that, that increase. Um, so at this point then, you know, assuming like Bixby, there shouldn't be a noticeable change for them unless the rate, unless the, um, the rate of uh, release goes up. So at this point, the the water flowing out of Keystone Dam and flowing downriver should be relatively stable. You know, we we've had a couple of people say, well, they're just trying to protect uh, the big homes there on on Keystone, or they're trying to make things uh, better for Memorial Day weekend on Keystone. Why can you explain? And I, I know you got into this a little bit with controlling the water as it's released, and you certainly don't want it overtopping the dam. But why is it better to have flooding on the river? than on the lake hmm um let's see here well <laughs> that is a good question um i guess for us again it, it comes back to balance and so there's an optimal level of water we can hold in the lake um and so at the end of the day our ability to maintain a balance between the river and the lake is paramount um, and so we want to have minimal impact in both areas. And so we're never going to, you know, deliberately sacrifice downriver to save the lake or vice versa. What we're going to do is maintain a balance between the lake and the river, maintain as much control as we can, maintain the control we need to, to make sure that we can operate the dams and locks appropriately. Are these decisions made minute by minute, hour by hour? Uh, what What is a day typical day like for the Army Corps as they try to uh, mitigate this well at this point we have we are in 24-hour operations so around the clock we have people monitoring the dams the levees the dikes um, the water flow monitoring the weather um, and so we make decisions as needed um, we try to forecast as much as we can but we are always watching always maintaining that awareness um, we're ready to respond if we need to um, but we're always maintaining this it's just extremely critical for us at this time. Adam Weiss is with the Army Corps of Engineers. One more quick question, Adam. There was a lot of uh, stuff, speculation going around on social media yesterday as people circulated a video of uh, of water that was uh, leaking through the levee in Sand Springs um, and a lot of concern that, you know, the levee was about to break. 
that's not the case, right? And this kind of seepage or weeping or whatever you call it is is kind of normal when the river's high. It, it, it exactly is. Um, and let me just go ahead and say right now that there are indicators in all of the levees and all of the dams that monitor this this rate of of seepage or weeping, as we call it. Um, and if if residents have any questions about the integrity of the levees or about the threading of the threats of flooding in their area, they should contact their community or their county emergency response managers, and they will have the most up-to-date inf- information on that because we will push our knowledge down to them. Um, but no, you're exactly correct. That is a, a normal thing to happen when there are flood conditions. The water is, is going to release in certain areas, but we are monitoring. Um, Again, like we talked about again before, the, the balance is what we try to maintain. And so we're always monitoring the integrity of the structures we have to make sure that they hold. And um, so, no, that, that people shouldn't be alarmed by that. But if they have any questions, they are encouraged to talk to their local emergency managers. Adam, you and the uh, Army Corps of Engineers have a tough job, and we respect that. And thank you for all your hard work. And my pleasure. We're, we're proud to serve. Adam Weiss with the Army Corps of Engineers. In just a moment, we'll talk to a couple of the architects of Tulsa's flood plan. But first, let's get a little historical perspective. It was 1984. It was Memorial Day weekend. And it was the most devastating weather event in our city's history, the flood of Memorial Day 1984. The numbers were pretty staggering. Led city leaders to create a flood mitigation program that is now the envy of the nation. Might not feel like it right now, but as bad as things are, they could have been much worse. KRMG goes in-depth. Here's KRMG's Russell Mills. I asked Steve Peltz of the National Weather Service office in Tulsa to pull some numbers for me. Between five and 6,000 buildings were damaged or destroyed. Um, 20 schools were affected. I, seven, I believe 7,000 vehicles uh, were flooded, floated away, those types of things. And there were 14 fatalities from the event. And a lot of other people that were hospitalized, right? A couple hundred. I believe, from what I understand, there was up to almost 300 injuries. I think the account we show here is 288 injuries from the event. So it was just a historic event by all different types of scales. Close to half a billion dollars in damage in 2019 dollars. A 14-year-old boy who lived through it is now a grown man who took up meteorology as a vocation. Angelo D'Alessandro became a river forecaster with the National Weather Service right here in town. 1976 Memorial Day, we had a flood that hit the city. And I was six years old, but I remember it. And so I had been through this before. And it was eerie because they were both around Memorial Day, eight years uh, apart. His family barely escaped complete disaster. Never actually got into uh, our our house. Uh, it, it, It got into the garage of the house across the street. And the house behind that had water. And pretty much from that point all the way to the creek, all the homes were were flooded. And some of the homes right on the creek got water, I think, into their second floors. Mary Alcaldi, a longtime Tulsa resident, shared her story with me. I saw a construction trailer that had been parked across the street floating past my bedroom window. So I was on the second story when I saw that. And I'm like, oh, my God, we're in the middle of a lake. So I woke my husband up. I don't swim. I'm pregnant. My oldest daughter was like, be four years old at that time, maybe five, I was scared to death. Actually, seven months pregnant, and she had family to worry about as well. I had a brother that lived on Peoria that also flooded, and he and his wife had to swim out. So he made it to my mother's. They got the neighbor and brought a John boat out, and I walked out in about five foot of water. 
because it had receded in just that length of time. And as Angelo explains, that's when the city decided to make flood mitigation a major priority. They bought out a bunch of homes off of some of the tributaries of Mingo Creek, tore those down, widened the creek channel, built a whole bunch of retention ponds. Uh, yeah, they, they did a, a whole lot of stuff as a result of this uh, flood. We can only speculate what would have happened this week if they hadn't, but I can tell you this. The first city in the country that attained a Class 3 flood rating from FEMA was Tulsa. Russell Mills, News 1023, KRMG. Oh, we might have a correction to that last uh, that last bit of information from Russell. We'll get into it in just a moment. We tell you the three big things you need to know every 15 minutes, all day. Now, back to the KRMG Morning News, 8 a.m. in-depth hour on News 1023, KRMG. 819, Dan Potter and Rick Corey, 8 a.m. in-depth hour. Our guests in the studio are Charles Hart, godfather of uh, Tulsa's flood plan and uh, Ron Flanagan, who is a senior planner with, uh, and I'm, I want to get the title right. It's is it Flanagan and Associates? Flan- yes, Flanagan and Associates. Uh, what is environmental planning, Ron? Well, we uh, take a an environmental uh, look at at uh, urbanization and try to avoid those things uh, that the environment tells us uh, to stay away from, such as floodplains. Okay, so if a developer wants to build a neighborhood, he would come to you and say, I want you to assess the environmental impacts here and and what kind of roadblocks are there to this development. Well, uh, I would be involved in in laying out the uh, plans for the development to begin with, and, and that would take into account the drainage uh, which most people don't take into account, hmm. and the floodplains and design uh, the uh, development around those uh, those uh, things, keeping them uh, vacant and in open space. What was your job in 1984? In 1984, I was uh, uh, I, I worked primarily for the development community. Uh, d- doing subdivisions and that kind of uh, thing. And then 84 was a, a, a changer. Uh, yeah. Charles, um, what were you doing in 1984? Well, I was involved as a partner of a Denver engineering firm, and s- stormwater was one of their big issues, and they had been a significant player in giving Tulsa advice. And so... I actually was a consultant working out of Tulsa. Yeah, and, and that leads to an interesting story that we'll get to in, in just a moment. But you, we heard Russell's piece there. 1984 really was the beginning of the big turnaround for Tulsa. And Rick, you were here in 1984, and you remember these guys and their role in, in making that change. Tell us about it. Well, it, it, I was in sports, of course, in 1984 here at KRMG, and so. It, but when that happened, it became an everybody on deck thing. Everybody, everybody's helping. So as I as I did that, and I've always been interested in what's happening, you know, in the news. Anyways, I did that. I started to learn these names, and especially at that point. Um, Charles became kind of a front guy. Uh, you heard that his name an awful lot in those things. And so they talked about what we wanted to do flood mitigation-wise. The biggest deal about what happened in 84 and 86 was we don't have social media and the availability of ways to get all that information out to th- at that point. KRMG got stuff out. There were some TV stations that did. But as that happened, that's why there were deths. People, they, weren't, they didn't know. 
they were doing Memorial Day things, and suddenly it was flooding, and they didn't know what to do. Mm. And that changed everything. But I do remember everything about the behind the scenes. I remember all the different mayors and their roles in doing this, and then how these guys, uh, how they became the godfathers of our flood mitigation system. The city didn't want to make these changes initially, right? No, they they opposed it. Uh, it took uh, citizens' involvement. Uh, which is a key, and also the media uh, to begin to inform people as to what the issues were. Uh, and and they forced the city uh, councilors to uh, uh, adopt a, a more stringent, uh, foresighted uh, approach to flood management. What was the first, because you know, they brought you on board at that time, you were supposed to be helping them handle it. What was your first suggestion to them when you really looked into this and said, here's why this happened, and here's what we need to do? What did you tell them? Well, it was very interesting. I had uh, previously been a consultant to FEMA uh, in Washington, and we were developing a a hazard mitigation plan for the nation. And one of the uh, areas uh, that, uh, since I was a consultant to them, that we used was Mingo Creek. And we used that as a scenario. And with participation from uh, FEMA people nationwide, they came to the conclusion that if Mingo Creek were to flood in this scenario, that the solution would be to buy the houses out. And that, at that time, had never been done by the federal government. Oh, wow. And this was a, was a unique sort of a approach. Well, then when the actual 1984 flood happened, I was a consultant to the city and so Mr. Hart uh, then uh, and myself and Stan Williams were hired by the city to be consultants to put together our recovery program. And so we implemented this buyout thing, which was the first in the nation. And we bought like 600 houses out of the floodplain rather than rebuilding them. Uh, those houses at that time were $30,000 uh, approximately each, and they had uh, – collected $100,000 in flood insurance payments. So at some point, you got to call a halt to that yeah, sort of yeah. nonsense. Yeah. But it was tough. And it was it was uh, the first in the nation, so it was real, real difficult to convince. But thank goodness we had uh, Terry Young was the mayor, and uh, he uh, he did things that, that most elected officials wouldn't do. He went out on the limb and and supported us on this and uh, rest is history we'll get into what came next that was just the first step we'll get into what came next happening now water is still flowing out of keystone lake at a rate of about 253,000 cubic feet per second and flood preparations are continuing downstream krmg skyler cooper is live at keystone dam with an update yeah dan the downstream there are a lot of issues with flooding already and the city of tulsa just recently put out updates on roads that are closed a lot of it's over on the west side of the river some of it's on the east side including riverside drives you need to check those and make sure you don't go around barricades. Here at the dam, Senator James Lankford was here this morning. He got a tour, and one of the first things I asked him was about the structural stability of the dam. He said, everything's fine. And then I spoke with Chris Husson. He is the commander of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers Tulsa District. Here's a little bit of what he had to say. Right now, the inflows into Keystone are upwards of 320,000 cubic feet per second. So if you think about the math, 320 coming in, 250 coming out, we're still gaining about 60 to 70,000 cubic feet per second into the lake. So the lake levels are continuing to rise. 
Uh, we've gone into what we call surcharge as of yesterday. And at this release rate, barring any additional um, rain events that may cause additional inflows, uh, we, will, we will peak out just over our surcharge rate for about a day. And then we expect to be able to start dropping the, the, lake le- or the release levels uh, probably Monday-ish. Uh, somewhere there's but we're constantly assessing that model so the lake you know, you're going to continue to see levels rise behind the lake right and so if you're if you're on the lake uh, behind you and uh, you know we do have either core owned property or Floyd's easements that we have uh, the rights to but if you're right next to the lake and you're a property owner or a homeowner don't expect it to drop for the next couple days and then in terms of downstream uh, so what this this flow rate started about noon yesterday and so based on travel times for on the Arkansas River system, uh, it should have hit. This flow rate should have hit Bixby about 04 this morning or so. So we think that at least the Tulsa area proper, maybe it's got a little bit ways to go in, to the Broken Arrow area. But we think that they should be seeing kind of the end state of what these flows are going to look like this morning, or at the very latest early this afternoon. And then it's really so in terms of what it's doing to the river, you know, it's very hard to to say. Um, we, we had expected, based on modeling, we had expected some of the flooding to be worse at lower levels, especially in Bixby, and it hasn't been. At the, for example, the 160,000 cubic foot and the, and the 215 cubic foot release rates that we had over the last couple days. So we think what, what quite possibly is happening is this flow rate is scouring the riverbed and is pushing some of that uh, sand and gravel and what have you further down, downstream, so you actually have a greater capacity uh, in the in the riverbed, which in turn allows you to push more water without flowing up over the banks. So, given that several days of this is going to continue, does that mean it will accept that and hold steady, or will flooding get worse over the days? Another, it's very hard to say. I think if you focus on the Tulsa area, I think what you're going to see uh, probably by afternoon today is what you're going to see. But again, you know, this is some pretty powerful water, and you know, it's constantly eroding even in places you can't see it. So if it, it would happen to erode a, a, a river bank at a certain location, maybe in a low area, you would have the potential for that water to then inundate whatever is behind that, that low spot, if you will. And so I, I can't say with any certainty that what you're going to see from a flooding perspective today is going to be the same tomorrow or Sunday. Uh, all I can tell you is that we're constantly assessing the situation and then you know we work very closely with the emergency management community to minimize the impacts uh, of, of downstream flooding. Uh, Skyler, that was fascinating. So I get the sense that um, he's trying very gently to say that if things hold, the worst of it may be right about now in Tulsa and the surrounding communities and that if if we're lucky and don't get a lot more rain to the north, that we might start seeing things recede. That's right. And that's one of the things that I've been most curious about is, okay, this is steady and that's already reaching the far south side of town, almost to Broken Arrow, he said. So if it holds steady, are we good? And this is the worst of the flooding? That, if that's the case, that's wonderful. But yeah. there's always the potential. And you heard him say there, he's not really sure if this rate over a continuous several days will get worse. One of the other things that we talked about was the number. You know, people, we've been updating the number constantly, but what does that really mean? The normal rate out here is like, what, 11,000 cubic feet per second. They went up to 85 a couple of weeks ago, and we thought that was a big deal. And then here we are at 250,000. Of course, nowhere near the uh, 86 release of over 300. This dam, I was so surprised by this. Keystone Dam can release up to a million cubic feet per second of water. Now, that's never going to happen. That's the high end that it's rated for structurally. It will withstand that that kind of release, right? It could, yeah. But the channel 
that would be terrible. Yeah. So they would never do that. And we're about as high as we want to go, really. All right. Skyler, thanks for all your hard work out there. Appreciate it. Fox 23 and KRG Skyler Cooper out at uh, Keystone Dam. It's 839. Joining us in the studio, Ron Flanagan of Flanagan Associates. He is a, an environmental planner who was consulting the city back in 1984, the mid-80s actually, uh, when all of the flood mitigation efforts really got turned around in Tulsa. And uh, uh, also with us is uh, Charles Hart, who is considered the godfather of Tulsa's flood plan. Let me play this open mic we got, gentlemen, and, and um, I know the answer to this, but I'll let you explain. For those of your listeners like myself who are not native Tulsans, I'm a little confused. I hear 1984 and I hear 1986. Are those two separate catastrophic flood events? It would help get a little information to clarify that. I appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah, two separate events, different rivers really involved, um, but really they kind of, both events play into each other, right? Charles? Or uh, yes, they very very well do. But uh, eighty six was the the river flooding. Eighty four was our local watersheds flooding. Yeah, so and, the, um, we're talking Mingo and Bird Creek and Caney. Those things correct, were flooding. Correct. Okay. It was mainly a, an urban problem and not a, a regional problem. Okay. Uh, but it was 84 that got the, the ball rolling for better flood mitigation, the buyout along Mingo, as we already talked about. And then by 86, how many changes had been made? Well, we had uh, moved from the early 70s, whenever there was frequent flooding on Joe Creek and many of the other streams. Mingo was a regular <coughs> issue. And so we basically had, by 86, developed a lot of the implementation of uh, some very uh, significant uh, flood control projects. And uh, we had started the regional detention concept. The uh, We actually had um, in, put in place ordinances that restricted future increases of problems in, by people building in the floodplain. And um, so we did it, those two things. We were implementing capital projects to, for flood relief, and we also had regulations that uh, and buyout program, as Ron pointed out earlier, with FEMA. And that, that solved a lot of our problems, not having to provide a structural solution where one wasn't mm. um, readily available. But you see the evidence of that, all those structural solutions uh, around town right now. You see parks that are kind of shaped like bowls. You see all of the concrete drainage systems that most of the year are empty or nearly empty. But that that was all part of the changes made in 86, right? That's, well. By 86. We, we started uh, in 74. 74, right. Uh, is when uh, the turnaround began and uh, we then as a community under Mr. Hart's uh, direction um, began to plan uh, floodplains as community open space parks recreation areas and and all of those uh, kinds of things we had when we started our program we had 26,000 houses in the floodplain now after uh, 30 years we've uh, we were down to 13,000. We've cut it in half, but we still have 13,000 houses that are vulnerable in the floodplain. So our job is not done. And it's difficult now because it's been 35 years without a major flood hmm. and the city's uh, emphasis is elsewhere. It's in the things that people uh, use every day, traffic, 
streets, water, sewer, police, fire. That's where the emphasis is. And stormwater management is kind of on the bottom of everybody's list. And this well, this is kind of a wake-up call, and yeah. we'll see what happens as a result of this. What does – every time one of these things happens, something <laughs> changes. And I, I actually have this question kind of for you, Ron, because – I mean for you, Charles – the watershed changes a little. It does change the river a little bit. What does change in these situations? How are things different after this is over and it's all back down to what you would call normal? How is that water basin and that watershed different, or is it? Well, it's. Um, I, I don't wouldn't say it's different, but uh, we've made continuous progress and rest- not allowing additional development in the floodplain has set then what. We, it put to a uh, value you have to reduce in flooding from then on. And so the, everything we've done since then has been a corrective solution, and we're not adding to the problem. The only exception to that is along the Arkansas River. That is really using the FEMA's floodplain map and the Corps of Engineer and its regulations for the dam. Hmm. So uh, – the Arkansas River is a different problem for the city of Tulsa. We have really, as a city, very little uh, effect on the flood uh, flooding issues. The others we have a better handle on. You notice during the early part of the week with the severe amounts of rain we've had, you didn't hear Tulsa's creeks in the media. Mm. It just was not we, to my knowledge, there wasn't an area that flooded as a result of localized drainage. And um, that's the difference between the river and in the local areas. We were able to sustain very high rainfalls, but yet didn't have any additional flooding that was significant. That's got to be tough, Dan. You've got, uh, you know, if you will, to, to put it this way, you've got a national thing coming through a local municipality mm-hmm. And all you can cur- all you can affect is what's outside the national thing, right? And, and, but that makes it hard inside the urban area, inside yeah. the city. That makes it difficult. No, Mayor Bynum, and and we hope to have Mayor Bynum on with us before nine. Although he got called into an emergency management meeting, uh, so we'll see. But um, you know, he he was stressing this is a regional event. This is not a city of Tulsa event. So it takes cooperation with Sand Springs and Bixby and Jinx and Broken Arrow and on and on down to Muskogee and beyond. Uh, everybody has to be involved in this. 846 on the KRMG Morning News. In our uh, quest to find the perfect flood song, we got this suggestion. Remember this one? Remember who it is? No, well, you, you shouldn't. It's Millie Vanilli. Lip syncing their way to start it. Blame it on the rain. So who is it really then? If we, if we get more flooding, uh, if, if the release rate has to go up at the Keystone Dam, we can blame it on the rain that we're getting northwest of us right now in Osage, Pawnee counties yeah. and up into Kansas because all of that, guys, all of that drains right into our river, right? Or in this case, the Arkansas River before it crosses the border and heads down this way. Uh, our guests in the studio are Charles Baker and Ron Flanagan, two of the architects of uh, Charles Hart. I'm sorry, Charles Hart. I don't know where I got Baker. Charles Hart and Ron Flanagan, two of the architects of Tulsa's flood control plan. 
Um, we talked a little bit about the difference between 84 and 86. 86 was largely like this. It was an Arkansas River event. 84 was tributaries to the Arkansas that run through Tulsa uh, and, and the changes that have been made there. Does it make you guys feel, I mean, th- this is a federal government problem. This is a FEMA and uh, Army National uh, Army Corps of Engineers problem on the Arkansas River. Does it make city planners feel a little bit frustrated uh, that, you know, that here's a body of water that affects the city so much, but it's kind of, you know, it's not your responsibility? Did you feel that way back in 86? Well, <clears throat> we feel somewhat differently. Uh, the federal government's uh, regulation extends to the banks of the Arkansas River, but all floodplain management is local. Uh-huh. And it's the city of Tulsa who uh, owns or controls uh, the Arkansas River floodplain, and that is the area uh, outside the channel itself. And uh, the city does have the ability to uh, control development in that unregulated area. And we've tried to uh, expand the regulation, but uh, the political will has not been there. Were you involved in the planning for the gathering place? No. No. I'm, I'm wondering how it's holding up. It, it's, it, I, I think if you're spending a half a billion dollars on a park, you're probably building in a lot of flood control measures, I would assume. So. Last time I went by, they were still okay. Um, okay. But there are some areas right across when you first get into the parking lot where it, you know, it gets lower and it drops <clears> down, but there's a pretty good berm going up the side there. Before we get out of here, this is totally a sidebar, but I feel compelled to mention this. We've talked a lot about the USS Batfish, the submarine in Muskogee that is now yes. floating again and apparently floating well, not listing to either side. I'm impressed. Seems seaworthy right now. It's still tethered by one line. Um, the Batfish, I didn't know this until today, but Henry Primo of Primo Mitsubishi and all the Primo dealerships here in town, he served on the Batfish. Mm-hmm. And as it was uh, taking water underneath it and it looked like it might float again, apparently the powers that be called Henry to find out how to lower the anchor? They did. They did. As a matter of fact, he still had all the plans and stuff. Henry will probably tell you about that. The Batfish was in New Orleans back then, and that's where Henry is from, and so he was on that boat a good bit. Here's what people don't understand. The Batfish was designed as a ramming submarine. So the front of that nose, that cone is specifically it's reinforced more than, mo- than most. Huh. So the fact is, if it got momentum and was pointed at you, that would be not good. So they want to keep the – I mean, it'd be a great picture going down the river, but oh they, we, we want to keep that from happening, so they're working on that. Charles and Ron, thank you both for being here. This hour goes by way too fast. We have a lot more we want to ask you about, but um, we're out of time. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Appreciate it.